Chapter One of King and Parliament, A.D. sixteen o three to seventeen fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. King and Parliament, A.D. sixteen o three to seventeen fourteen, by George Henry Wakeling. Introduction. The Middle Ages had ended in England amid the storm and stress of the Wars of the Roses. Wearied out by thirty years of bloodshed on the battlefield and the scaffold, the English nation threw itself at the feet of Henry the Seventh and craved of him naught but strong governance and the end of anarchy. It was on these terms that he and his progeny ruled England. But the Tudors had a shrewd perception of the truth that Englishmen are more easily led than driven. They were tyrannical to many individuals who resisted their will in things secular or religious, but to the majority they represented that majesty and security which we now describe as the state. For while they maintained strict law and order in the land, as is the first duty of every government, they studiously avoided collisions with the prejudices and feelings of the nation. The result was that during the 16th century Englishmen developed a new spirit. It was not quite a spirit of liberty. We are accustomed nowadays to a freedom in our actions and opinions which was quite unknown then. If a man spoke or wrote or even thought differently from his fellows in Tudor times, he was suspected of disloyalty. There had been so much anarchy and division during the civil wars of the previous century that an absence of disagreement was felt to be the all-important thing. The king and his government must be obeyed without criticism. Religion was not, as now, a matter for each man to choose for himself without interference. The government could not afford to let men obey their own consciences. A Roman Catholic was an enemy of the nation, because he believed in the pope's authority rather than in the king's a puritan was suspected of disloyalty because he placed his own ideas before the law of the land no one could be loyal both to pope and king many had to choose between law and conscience the slightest criticism of any matter in church or state was considered the forerunner of rebellion if the Tudors gave England peace and order, they expected in return unquestioning obedience. The nation was to be one in thought and belief, for only so could it be one in action. It was thus that Englishmen learned to feel that they were one, and the sixteenth century gave us a national spirit. It was shown in many ways. Men like Raleigh felt sure that nature intended Englishmen to fight Spaniards. Men like Richard Grenville expressed their joy that they never turned their backs on Don or Devil yet. Shakespeare transplanted into the tale of the Lancastrian reigns a fire and a patriotism which really belonged to his own day. But the real source of this spirit was the change in religion. The Reformation had a profound effect upon England as a nation and upon the separate individuals who composed it. It taught Englishmen to believe in their independence and freedom from the interference of the Bishop of Rome. 
this was at the bottom of the great national feeling of which we have spoken but men also learnt that since they were responsible to god for their own acts and words they must learn to think for themselves this was an entirely different feeling it made each man believe in himself it may be called the personal spirit now the tudors wished to have the national spirit without this personal one the first would help to secure reverence for their government for men would see in the monarch the embodiment of that free orderly nation which was for the future to depend upon itself but the second was considered dangerous it might lead men to question the sovereign's right to decide religion as it had led them to question the pope's right now this is exactly what happened this personal spirit led men into a new religious belief when in the latter half of the sixteenth century the church of england as established by law in elizabeth's day failed to satisfy some earnest thinkers they adopted the extreme opinions of the continental protestants this new religious force was called in derision puritanism the men who held it wished to purify the church of all that reminded them of a hated popish past of bishops of ceremonies and ritual even of sacraments elizabeth while relaxing wherever possible the bonds of discipline yet refused to allow to individual consciences any departure from the church system she had established either in the direction of roman catholicism or of the advanced protestantism of the continent so the puritans were punished for not conforming to the national church no less than were the roman catholics some obeyed and accepted the prayer-book and episcopacy others shook the dust of england from their feet and went abroad thus there were two new spirits or forces in the land which must some day become antagonistic to each other the national and the personal spirit the tudor government had set itself to use the first and curb the second at the beginning of the seventeenth century therefore england needed a great man and there was a great work for him to do when a nation becomes strong and united the time for absolute government is past a monarch may act for a people when they are disunited and discipline them when they quarrel but he must act with them when they have learned the lesson of unity they will then require some share in their own government some right to advise or choose they will refuse to be told what they are to do and believe as if they were still unable to act and think for themselves it is always a slow movement from the one form of government to the other and at the crisis it needs a man who possesses the nation's confidence to lead it steadily along the path of toleration and self-government such a leader must believe in the nation no less than in himself the crisis had now arrived and unfortunately for england the stuart kings who now sat upon the throne of the tudors were quite unfitted for the task they believed in themselves and not in the nation they thought they had a personal mission to govern and consequently treated opposition and criticism as impudence and ignorance no doubt they had a good deal of both to encounter but the new rulers were unable to discern that underneath the opposition and prejudices there lay that spirit which has been the making of all great nations james i and charles i wished to work on tudor principles 
and failed to understand that they had to deal with a people which had already spent a sufficient number of years in the nursery nor were these kings prepared to work with the nation and take it as it was they believed they possessed a divine hereditary right a right endorsed by their own wisdom and abilities sanctioned by the personal power allowed to past kings and upheld by their family tree they did not comprehend that the sovereign power which all efficient governments must possess will only be respected by those who approve its work and can understand its methods so they drew a line between themselves and the nation and thus destroyed that mutual understanding which had supported the tudor government while the tyrant henry the eighth had often taken his parliaments into his confidence king james or king charles were always careful to remind the two houses that they and their sovereign could never treat as equals thus the union of king and people which the tudors had fostered the stuarts neglected but the nation had learned the lesson and believed in it when the good-natured laziness of james i and the conceit of his son charles allowed the national feeling to be wounded by arrogant spanish ambassadors and subservient royal chaplains resistance was aroused at once in contemning the national spirit these kings aroused the personal one the puritan one roman catholicism was still to most englishmen the evil one in disguise and when the stuarts refused to see it in that light yet condescended to give no reasons for toleration puritan politicians were exasperated while puritan divines and pamphleteers wrote enthusiastic and wearisome tracts to prove that england was pledged to the continental form of protestantism high church clergymen were rewarded by royal favour for preaching and writing that the king was above the law and could be neither criticised nor resisted and the puritans answered by combining their resistance to ecclesiastical innovations with a passionate claim for the supremacy of parliament over the royal power thus the religious and the political opposition were merged in one the struggle that ensued became a battle for sovereignty that is for the supreme and final power in the state both parties claimed divine sanction for their religious programme and each wished the state to enforce it the king and a majority of the churchmen combined to resist the claims of the parliament and the puritans the parliament and the puritans combined to dispute the king's right to lay down the law in church and state thus the opposition though it claimed to be national was really inspired by that personal spirit which claimed the right to think for itself in matters political as well as in matters religious men began to teach that the real duty of a government was to get at the mind of the nation and carry out its will rather than to dictate what was to be done and believed now the question of sovereignty was one on which it was useless to appeal to former practice for there were enough precedents in church and state to justify both parties each accused the other of innovation or departure from custom and each claimed the conservative position so dear to englishmen the king said that the claims of parliament to a share in the sovereign power were unheard of as indeed they were if tudor times were the test archbishop laud thought the puritan idea of a strict observance of the sabbath was unheard of which until very recent years it certainly was 
on the other hand parliament considered that the king's claim to be above the law was unheard of and on medieval precedents this too was true the puritans urged that the ceremonies they were told to observe were innovations and for many years this also was true the solution of the religious dispute was a gradual extension of freedom and thought and action but for this neither party was as yet prepared the solution of the political dispute was a gradual change in the form of government from one in which the king commanded and the nation chafed into one in which the government was responsible to parliament while parliament was responsible to the electors the struggle wore on till it ended in war which did not bring a settlement of the question not till the end of the century was toleration begun in practice and the law finally placed above the king but by the time of william the third the cabinet responsible to parliament which carries on a national government in accordance with national wishes was not far distant when england had learnt that the majority of men in a civilized nation cannot be permanently excluded from a share in its government the goal to which the struggles of the seventeenth century had been pointed was reached it is our own fault to-day if we cannot trust each other in religious questions and trust our elected government in national questions End of chapter one